This is the Grassy Knoll on this February 9th, 2005. We were supposed to have in the first hour John Turner, a former uh, IRS officer who was with the organization known as Save the Patriot Fellowship. He tried to email me. God bless him. He did the right thing. But unfortunately, I wasn't in the office to field him. <laughs> when I called him and talked to him, it was quite obvious that he had no voice. So very graciously, the guest that we had for our second hour, Philip D. Collins, has stepped in. And um, well, although I'm a little bit unprepared, Philip, I, to introduce you is a very difficult thing. I would say to the audience, though, there are a number of articles by Philip out there, along with his brother Paul Collins, that deal with what we're facing today. And it's a very, very um, entangled web that we're talking about. But I believe the Collins brothers have done probably what I've seen is the best job thus far to try to tell people, look, this is where we're headed, and it's based on where we were. And... Um, Philip, you are the author, uh, along with your brother, of the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an Examination of Epistemic Autocracy from the 19th to the 21st Century. And Philip, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for stepping in like this. I never thought we were going to get our first two hours this way. <laughs> well, anytime, anytime. It's All right. No problem. Thank you. And if you have to go scramble for, um, for material, I understand that. And, uh, you know, we'll deal with that if we have to. Sure, sure. All right. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to say that what draw, drew my attention to you was the article that I found through Corbin's uh, A Closer Look mm -hmm, entitled the, uh, was it? Uh, oh, the uh, Semiotic Deception yeah, of 9-11. Uh, of September 11th. Yes. Now, I think most of us do understand the concept of semiotic, but not in that term. Now, can you tell us, for instance, um, I, I'm assuming that it's close to symbology, but will you tell us what semiotic is all about? Absolutely. A actually, symbology is a subsidiary of uh, semiotics. Um, semiotics is basically the study of signs. Uh, that's a somewhat overly simplified uh, definition. Uh, the field uh, also concerns itself with the application of signs in human discourse. Moreover, signs aren't just images. Uh, spoken and written words also constitute signs. So the field really encompasses all human communication. Its uh, significance in conspiracy research is its potential for deciphering the esoteric symbology of the uh, secret societies that comprise the ruling class religion. Uh, many of these symbols are actually presented before the public eye, yet the uh, commoner is only familiar with the uh, exoteric or denotative meaning of the uh, symbol. Meanwhile, the uh, esoteric or connotative meaning of the symbol is tangibly enacted right before our very eyes every day. Uh, for instance, very few Americans are even remotely familiar with the uh, connotative meaning of the great seal that adorns our currency. Um, but the semiotician can probably discern more just by examining the sign itself. That's not to suggest that every semiotician will recognize the Great Seal's conspiratorial nature, but they will be able to develop some fragmentary understanding. For instance, the semiotician would see the truncated pyramid and draw the inference of an unfinished ongoing project. Uh, the all-seeing eye would uh, give the semiotician the inference of divine providence, although not necessarily a divine providence that is consistent with uh, biblical Christianity, uh, the Latin phrase annuit coceptus would reinforce this inference, uh, uh, meaning he blesses this undertaking. 
uh, in the original Latin. And the other Latin phrase, e plurbus unum, which means out of many one, would suggest some sort of a monistic preoccupation with oneness. But already the semiotician has discerned a lot more than your average Joe. And all this uh, was derived from the simple study of that sign, which adorns the uh, the uh, uh, back of our currency, and uh, is why semiotics is so important and so integral to uh, conspiracy research. Let me pin you down also while we, we are uh, on the back of the dollar bill, because that is an exceptionally interesting piece of paper. Uh, there is also the words, uh, is it not... Um Novo Ordo Seclorum? Absolutely. Uh, Novus Ordo Seclorum, which is Latin for New Order of the Ages or New, uh, new Secular Order. Uh, it, and basically, the, the Seclorum part uh, suggests suggest, uh, 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 secular, a secular order, which will, uh, of course, secularization has been commonly associated with uh, atheism, although... Uh, uh, men like sociologists like William Sims Bainbridge have made clear that secularization actually doesn't represent the obliteration of religion, but instead the clearing of the uh, spiritual marketplace for a brand new theocratic order. So really you have there already the inference, uh, the, uh, the connotative meaning being that uh, the uh, uh, spiritual vacuum that will be left after the uh, demise of Christianity, which is one of the... Uh, uh, goals of the elite uh, will be a new theocratic order with a brand new God and a brand new state-sanctioned religion. A couple of things. Uh, before when you were talking about the commoner or the common person not understanding, it's not because they don't have the sagacity, it's because they really are veiled, are they not, from these uh, semiotics? Yes, yes. They, the 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 uh, uh, commoner, you know, again, is only familiar with the denotative uh, meaning denotate uh, the denotation of a sign is basically the sign's literal meaning. You see an eagle, uh, that's pretty much what you see, an eagle, a bird. But the connotative meaning for, say, the eagle has been a symbol of Americanism. It's symbolic of Americanism, symbolic of, of courageousness, uh, uh, and all those qualities that are embodied within Americanism. We see those also portrayed in the eagle in its connotative meaning. Likewise, you uh, you see, uh, or uh, uh, regular citizen sees the obelisk in uh, Washington D.C. Denotatively, they see just that a, a, a an obelisk, a you know a long uh, a protrusion from the ground. But uh, uh, connotatively, it's really a symbol of uh, phallic worship uh, mm -hmm. that uh, uh, dates back to uh, uh, Nimrod and uh, the uh, uh, Babylonian mystery religions. Also, um, to revisit the back of the dollar, um, what is your understanding, not that it's an, you know, a, a real big point, mm -hmm. but what is your understanding about when that verbiage and design was delivered to the United States? Now, I know that FDR uh, commissioned it to be put on the back of the dollar, but did it not reach the United States long before that? What's your uh, take on that? Um, well, as I understand it, it, it was it was uh, presented to the founding fathers, and I, I don't remember exactly who it was that presented it to to uh, some of the founding fathers. But um, um, it, it's a symbol that dates back back quite a ways. It dates mm -hmm. back all the way to to Egypt, uh, to ancient Mesopotamia. Um, what's interesting about 
the the symbol, the great seal, is the fact that that as you said, it was introduced to our uh, currency by uh, FDR. Um, um, really, it's a it's a uh, symbol of scientism, um, which uh, scientism is basically the uh, epistemological belief that that uh, all knowledge is derived through science and uh, absolute primacy. Uh, is bestowed upon science, and while that seems, you know, kind of that seems kind of desirable, being that we have so much faith in science nowadays, the problem is is that science uh, or scientism uh, uh, is is basically it's it's a unit of it's it's a system of measurement, and as a system of measurement, it has to preclude those things that that outstrip its finite units of measurement and those things include human dignity liberty you know individuality the spirit the soul and so these things will be precluded uh, according to a scientific society and that's exactly what the uh, great seal the truncated pyramid all that represents is a scientific uh, new scientific theocratic order uh, a number of things now as we see more listeners coming on the uh, stream uh, this is the Grassy and All. This is Visigoth. Uh, I am with Philip Darrell Collins. In the first hour, we were to have had on John Turner from Save the Patriot Foundation. He came up horse, which is really, really a, a, a blow because last night I spoke to him at um, between 7 and 8 p.m. his time out in California, and he was in full voice. But when I went to call him just a couple of minutes ago, he uh, he sounded like somebody was about 115. However, uh, in the second hour, we were to have had on Philip Darrell Collins, and he's been gracious enough to join us in this first hour, and it is with he um, that we are talking. And um, I, as I had said earlier in the program, was drawn to him because of an article that appeared, you know, just in one of these email lists, which was entitled The Semiotic Deception of September 11th. And Philip, if we can go back... Um, to talk about uh, some of the imagery uh, and a, a final little note to this Novo Ordo Seclorum. Mm -hmm. That is from Virgil, the poet, is it not? Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, um, I, I, I have heard other scholars suggest uh, other authors, but uh, so far that seems to be the most, the most likely of authors. Well, what's doubly interesting is that in uh, George Bush's inaugural address uh, last month, he cited that exactly as it is, and he called it a new order of the ages. Absolutely. What I found interesting, though, was a while ago, Bill Moyers, whom we all know from PBS, held a, uh, a town hall meeting, and he conjured a Virgil statement, but completely left out the word order. He said it was a new, uh, a new, a new age of the beginning, or a new beginning of the ages. And I, I was like, well, what about that Latin word ordo there, Bill? I think um, there was something inherent in his not wanting to um, refer to that particular word because of, it, of the obvious connotation or denotation, and that is new world order. Yeah, and and also it's it's I think it's quite it was almost intention that he would use the the uh, designation of age because being that new age is it, the yeah. new age yeah, yeah. It's much it's the capstone yeah. of the religious uh, movement uh, that that underpins the. Uh, the drive for global government. Excellent point, because, yeah, he swapped out one thing for another, and we had Chris uh, Pinto on, a documentary filmmaker of the series Megiddo, uh, who dealt in this second installment with, with the New Age religions and the twists on such that are entering Christianity. 
And you're right. I never thought about that until now. But um, you lose the orders, but you gain the new ages, don't you? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And the the uh, age that they are believe that that they are basically initiating that they're bringing in uh, is the uh, age of Aquarius, which was. Uh, supposed to be the uh, new antithetical age, uh, a, a, a uh, age that's antithetical to the age of Pisces, which is uh, commonly associated with Christianity. And uh, now the new deity is one, uh, an emergent deity that is of an apotheosized or deified man, so-called mm-hmm. with its, and, and has been written uh, with a capital M, so as to denote his purported intrinsic divinity and god right godhood absolutely absolutely um, i asked this of chris pinto and i'm only asking you because i am curious for myself i don't know how many of the listeners have heard uh of this tape series which dates back now over 20 years i can't believe it are you familiar with constant cumby's series uh the hidden dangers of the rainbow yes as a matter of fact yes it's a, a excellent excellent book too excellent book did that I mean, when did you encounter that? Did you encounter that twenty years ago, as I had, or uh, or recently, or uh, more recently? My my uh, brother, who's also the co-author of the book, has uh, had also introduced me to it. Um, I noticed that that the in it, uh, Constant Cumby uh, uh, brings to light the uh, New Age movement's chronic references to Aryans to. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, uh, a, a, a emergent a, a emergent new deity in mankind, and, and that uh, 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 this was this was analogous to to the Aryans, which of course are now of Nazi infamy. But but uh, uh, you find that doctrine uh, very much uh, present also in Nazi Germany. Uh, uh, this this uh, idea of of humanity becoming uh, God. Um, that they uh, ascribe the uh, term Aryan to it almost really doesn't have much to do with blonde hair, blue-eyed people so much as it has right. to do with with a a new breed of uh, of man that who's uh, who's uh, coming into being through through the processes of evolution, which by the way is a, a doctrine of transformism that basically dates back to uh, to Mesopotamia and was just really popularized by Charles Darwin in the uh, beginning of the, uh, well, the latter half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, One question about uh, this Aryan race, uh, as you mentioned. Um, Yeah, this this is something we're thinking about, about the Germanic Uberman, but that really, it goes back so far. And and were these people, do you know, uh, necessarily uh, Anglos? Were 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 they, you know, Hindus or... Actually, the Aryans, as, or the concept of Aryanism, as I understand it, is uh, really not really humanity at all. It's it's actually uh, uh, a post-human condition. Uh, it, it's it, it's a kind of quasi-gnostic uh, uh, concept where humanity will evolve beyond the point to where it's it's no longer recognizable as a human being. And you've seen the you've seen this belief system time and time again. You mentioned the uh, Ubermensch, which basically was the you know term that was coined by Nietzsche. Nietzsche, right? Yeah, Nietzsche also said that humanity was something to be overcome. So it's it's really it's really a a point at which humanity has overcome its own humanity and ceases to be human. 
and uh, uh, the, this, 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 we've seen this before, of course, with Hitler's Aryan. We've seen it with Nietzsche. We've seen it in communist Russia with the so-called uh, Soviet man. And uh, despite cultural variations and modification, uh, modifications, the myth remains the same. Um, and it, basically, it's it, it's it's uh, it's also a Freemasonic uh, myth. It's if you uh, read the book. Uh, W. Elms Wilmshurst, uh, The Meaning of Masonry, basically on page, uh, I think, 47, he basically says that the, the real purpose of modern masonry, which was also the purpose of the ancient myst- mysteries, was to expedite this evolution of man uh, towards this, this post-human state, towards this state where he's no longer man, but he is, in fact, God. Uh, Chris Pinto dealt with that a lot, because that seems to be, of course, as we know, especially as it pertains to Scripture, that the sin that cast Satan out of heaven was to be as God. Yes. And so when that um, finds itself uh, traveling down the food chain to a homo sapiens, it's no different. And I think we might be witnessing that right now with science, as you said, uh, even with, with the cloning of life and the creation of life. And, um, you know, perhaps some, some areas that we might not want to venture down, but we are certainly doing that today. Certainly, certainly. Now, we had spoken about doing a series, and we will do that. It will not necessarily be live every Wednesday, but we are going to, going to do it in an episodic um, arrangement. And um, in talking to Philip, Philip thought that a good title would be The Magicians of Mutability. This would be an overarching title for the series. And w- when you came up with that, Philip, what were you addressing necessarily with that title? Okay. Well, basically, um, mutability. Mutability is is basically the 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 uh, uh, potential for a species to mutate or to change. Uh, to uh, you have that sort of uh, uh, jargon also used by the ancient uh, uh, or the ancient uh, uh, alchemist. Uh, the mutability of uh, Silver or right, metal lead, yeah, lead into gold, base metal, which was actually a cover for for their actual purpose, which was the mute the mutability of humanity into to superhumanity. Um, but uh, basically, the the elite believed that this this um, mutability can be facilitated to, today now through science. And uh, it's interesting because if you take the word tech, uh, uh, technology and you take uh, away its original root, which is techne, it means craft. Uh, and craft is, of course, associated with uh, witchcraft. And uh, uh, witchcraft, uh, of course, is associated with the term wicca, which means to bend, as in the bending of reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, also as in the bending of human nature. But... um. um it's interesting because many many modern contemporary uh, scientists and theoreticians uh, now uh, pretty much openly admit that that this that this is uh, really really just a new incarnation of magic. For instance, uh, uh, I believe his name's Mark Pesky. Yeah, Mark mm-hmm. Pesky, who's the right. uh, co-inventor of uh, virtual reality modeling language. Uh, he wrote, and I quote now. The enduring archetype of techne within the pre-modern era is magic of an environment that conforms entirely to the will of being, unquote. So really, uh, what we have is, is the new breed of ma- uh, magicians or, the science, uh, or scientists or right. the scientific elite 
and uh, they they intend on transforming man through the sorcery of technology. Yeah, and and they certainly are not doing this in and of themselves, but they are most definitely being financed and backed and funded by the powers that be. We call them global elitists. Uh, you know, in this in the United States, Philip, I don't know how you feel about it, but we look at it as the foundations in particular, like Rockefeller and Ford and Carnegie. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is going on globally, it's just not here. We understand that. So, you know, somebody said something about, it's funny, but if you were to ask people about their trustworthiness of science, they would probably give it a pretty high grade. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, they just look at it as like, well, they know more than we do. Sure. But I had read an article once that, that warned, and we're going to go to the scientific dictatorship, which is one of the cornerstones of, of our getting together, the, one of the articles you wrote. But, I mean, you know, scientists lie, too. Yeah, they, they sure do. And, and, again, the problem is is that science being what it is, it, again, it's, it's finite in nature, and it does not take into account the infinite. Um, as a measuring stick, it, just, it, it must exclude certain things that, that no longer fit the stick. And that includes the soul, that includes the spirit, that includes, uh, 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 you know, human dignity and liberty. And these things are precluded when you take a scientific approach towards the uh, configuration of society, uh, a, a, a society that is, that is completely and totally configured along the contours of science, uh, is one that is completely stripped of liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably read the uh, uh, report from Iron Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in that report, I think that uh, the authors put it uh, quite succinctly. They basically say that uh, uh, with with a uh, scientifically uh, regimented society, that axiomatic values, as they put it, uh, become non-existent. And those axiomatic values include all those things that you and I value, which are liberty and uh, our dignity and, and, you know, our freedom. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to let everybody know, again, as we are early into the program, perhaps many people looking for uh, John Turner from Save a Patriot Foundation, but he uh, was taken suddenly under the weather. And with us is the guest for the second hour, who has graciously um, agreed to come off for the first hour, and that is Philip D. Collins. Now, what I want to do is, um, if people are listening on the Internet, and uh, by the way, TK out there in uh, northern Illinois, sorry we didn't have John on, but I know you're interested in this just as well. Um, where are the bulk of your articles uh, available? Uh, the bulk... I mean, is Biped one of those sites? Yeah, the bulk, is, the 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 main ground groundwork for for all my work can be found on Biped, uh, which is uh, uh, basically uh, all one word: uh, b i p e d dot info. www dot b i p e d dot info. Um, the uh, the website uh, is largely a, a website for the uh, 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 intelligent design movement. Um, which uh, all all the positions of of the theoreticians that comprise that movement don't necessarily endorse my views, nor I endorse theirs. But um, um, it, it, the the uh, the main re- the main purpose of the website is to present an alternative to Darwinian evolution. 
Uh, my articles largely concerned themselves with uh, exposing the occult with the uh, entry of he the human race into the uh, 21st century. Also, um, we want to tell people, and, and uh, uh, do you have a website, by the way? Uh, no, I sure don't. Only the websites for the book. <laughs> okay. All right. And, and let me give that now. The, the book that you and your brother co-authored uh, is entitled The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an Examination of Epistemic Autocracy from the 19th to the 21st Century. That's available at the website www.iuniverse.com slash bookstore and also really if they go onto the web as i've done with you and they would do a search on you and your brother uh they would come up with these outlets would they not yes absolutely that and uh also amazon.com barnesandnobles.com there's a, a multiplicity of uh outlets for the book all right now as it um addresses 911 mm-hmm uh, which is a very touchy subject, obviously, for a lot of people, uh, but one in which we also have dealt with for over the, well, from the years since it happened. Certainly. Uh, what struck you about exactly what the title says, and that is, what about the semiotic deception of September 11th? Can we go into that? Sure, sure, absolutely. Well, the uh, semiotic deception basically began several years before uh, 9/11 and was part of a, a larger project that uh, researcher Michael Hoffman calls uh, sci-fi predictive programming. Uh, essentially, through literatures and uh, literature and films, uh, science fiction acts as a uh, transmission belt for globalist and occult uh, thought. Science fiction has been called the uh, literature of ideas. And this is a very appropriate designation because uh, the pre-September 11th world represented what I characterize as an ideational contagion or a contagion of ideas that was promulgate, promulgated in no small part by uh, science fiction. For instance, there was uh, Independence Day, which was replete with global, uh, globalist rhetoric. Uh, plot inconsistencies basically betrayed the film's own globalist agenda. The title denotes uh, a struggle for freedom against some entrenched oppressor. However, the uh, aliens in the film, if you pay attention, you know, close attention to the film, were not intent upon subjugation. They were bent on genocide. Thus, the connotative meaning of the film's title suggests uh, reconceptualizing of America and America's tradition of Independence Day, our, our traditional notions of what it means to be independent and free, may, and thus making us conform more to a globalist framework of world government. And that, that's exactly what happens in the film Independence Day. Uh, near the end, basically, you witness the amalgamation of all nation states, including America, into a global superstate. But uh, Independence Day's uh, role in the semiotic deception of the masses reached its nadir with 9-11, as is evidenced by uh, an intertextual reference made by MSNBC journalist Ron Insania on the day of the WTC attacks. Uh, in an interview with Matt Lauer and uh, Tom Brokaw and uh, Katie Couric, uh, Insania likened the WTC attacks to Independence Day. And uh, Professor uh, Elliot Gaines, who's a semiotician and broadcast journalist critic, also uh, one of my mentors in semiotics, observed that this allusion to a commonly known cultural text being Independence Day, which is, is basically known 
uh, now, thanks to mass media all over the world, uh, irrespective of your cultural background, uh, that reference would alter the paradigmatic character of 9-11. According to Gaines, Independence Day's narrative binary opposition of good versus evil was imposed on the events of 9-11. So suddenly the good humans that you saw in in, uh, Independence Day yeah, became America. And uh, all of a sudden the evil aliens became the Arabs. And this deception was further augmented by uh, NBC's conscious use. And I say conscious because they were quite they were quite aware of the fact that they were using archive footage of Palestinian demonstrators accompanied by a title card reading earlier this morning. Now, Couric read, uh, uh, along with this, a an unverified wire from the West Bank stating that the demonstration was a celebration of the WTC attacks. But uh, NBC would later confess openly that it, its use of the archive footage with an unverified wire constituted a breach of ethics. But it was too late. The damage was already done, already in the eyes of America. Uh, the Arab world was the source of all our woes. And the paradigmatic template of Independence Day, which good humans against evil aliens, was imposed on 9-11. Meanwhile, the supranational elite who were responsible for the creation of bin Laden and the deactivation of America's national security apparatus remained hidden behind a semiotic mirage. Um, but that's basically how, uh, the, the role that Independence Day, uh, which was just one of the many sci-fi predictive programming uh, uh, films, played in uh, uh, September 11th. It may as well. You may as well have had a, a movie poster uh, with uh, yeah. September 11th written across it, and the same uh, picture of the, uh, you know, the the now uh, famous picture of the uh, uh, alien craft blasting the White House to bits, mm-hmm. posted on every billboard in in America. That that was basically the paradigmatic character that the elite imposed upon the event. Well, two points. One, and, and this is specific. Um... I was uh, caught uh, back in my native New Jersey. I'd gone back to visit, and um, when 9-11 occurred, I was there. And uh, s- reports we were getting, and, and I, live in nor- uh, I lived in northeast uh, New Jersey, and for those who need like fixed points, that would be like Hackensack and Teaneck and Fort Lee. And along I-80, uh, there's a, a town of considerable size called Patterson. And we were getting, uh, I guess reports verbally, and I believe there were some on local uh, media that were saying uh, and showing films of uh, supposed Arabs uh, rejoicing in what took place, and that there had been some um, uh, blowback um, from uh, another ethnic community, uh, the blacks of Patterson, against the Muslims for celebrating. This never, ever, in the end, was proven true. So not only, as you cite, Philip, did it take place on NBC New York, Channel 4, but it was happening also uh, across the river uh, in uh, other neighborhoods. Now, whether this was concerted, we don't know, but certainly it did help resonate the fact that the Arabs are the bad guys, the Muslims are the bad guys, and we're the good guys. Absolutely. Now, um, again, regarding 9-11 and the movie Independence Day, and I sent you something that was a rough draft of an article soon to be published about 
the uh, symbology that has been laid in movies, if you will, almost ten, as far back as 10 years ago. Do you think this 9-11 situation, as laid out by Osana, and also the hearkening back to Independence Day, do you believe this was all orchestrated, this was deliberate? Yes, I do. Um, um, I believe that, that semiotic intimations uh, were, were already thoroughly embedded in, in uh, mass media and uh, in our, uh, our basically uh, our subconscious years in advance. Um, um, perhaps even decades. Um, not to say that that the elite um, were able to to perfectly uh, uh, orchestrate 9/11, uh, uh, you know, right on on a some sort of a time clock or some sort of a schedule. But but the ground the groundwork the I guess the psychocognitive groundwork was laid well in advance. Um, for instance. Uh, you take a, 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 a the cultural milieu that uh, basically surrounded the pre nine uh, uh, September eleventh world um, uh, witnessed a film in nineteen ninety seven called uh, Starship Troopers, which mm-hmm. was uh, uh, of course based on the Robert Heinlein uh, novel. But uh, in the analysis of the uh, movie, uh, film critic uh, Jeffrey Whitehall. Uh, states that the narrative paradigm is premised upon the assertion that, and now I'm quoting him, quote, the sovereign state on uh, uh, the sovereign state relies on the creation of an external threat to author its foreign policy, unquote. Now, the very same year of uh, Starship Troopers' release, former National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski published The Grand Chessboard. And The Grand Chessboard is an extremely important book because the uh, Grand Chessboard basically lays out the geostrategy that uh, the uh, neoconservative faction of the elite are uh, now tangibly enacting in in, uh, 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 the... uh, the East and uh, uh, Iraq and, and uh, Afghanistan and what have you. But at any rate, in Zbigniew Brzezinski's book, The Grand Chessboard, he says, and now, and I'm quoting, America may find it more difficult to fashion a consensus on foreign policy issues except in the circumstance of a truly massive and widely perceived direct external threat, unquote. Again, the, 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 the semiotic intimations were were embedded within pop culture within uh pop entertainment to prepare America and Americans for for a uh an external threat and that the notion is is that that our foreign policy relies on the existence of external threats which is kind of a hegelian notion because the notion is is that we are in order for uh any sovereign state to exist, we're going to require conflict. Mm-hmm. So this 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 goes back, you know, way 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 back. I mean, it even goes as far back as uh, as uh, uh, the film 2001: A Space Odyssey. In uh, 2001: The Space Odyssey, uh, uh, the uh, basic uh, the one of the semiotic uh, markers in that is uh, the uh, monolith, and uh, the monolith acts as a signal. For that uh, human evolution is uh, moving on to its next glorious step, um, and that 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 something big is about to happen. Well, lo and behold, 
uh, New Year's two thousand with New Year's in uh, two thousand one. Um, um, basically, in Magnuson Par- uh, Park, a monolith appeared. Nobody knew where it came from. It was very well sculpted, very well made, and uh, uh, the city and, and people were debating its fate. But then it it disappeared. So evidently, the idea was that uh, to conveyed was that uh, humanity is on to its next step, on to evolution, and that. You know, very same year, Osama bin Laden, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and and you know the rest of of the uh, alleged perpetrators of 9/11 basically destroyed the WTC. So again, yes, the semiotic uh, signposts are all there. Now I had sent to you. Uh, did you get a chance to look at that at all? That rough draft of an article yet to be published? Uh, no, not yet. No. Okay, no problem. But this gentleman is looking into. Uh, what he would would term the symbology of 9/11 in films going back more than 10 years ago, and uh, he's also offered them as he's gone along with the caveat that well you know this might be a, a coincidence I understand that but I would rather show it than not, and again like he said there's there's reasons why if for instance and I'm really roughly remembering this in a certain movie a person is standing between a bank of elevators and it's a long shot I guess and he's standing between nine and eleven. Now, you could be standing between 11 and 13 or sure. 7 and 9. I mean, now, yeah, sure, it could be a coincidence. But, sure. you know, we have to look back at this and wonder if we, have been, if we are being prepared by uh, mass communications to include TV and movies uh, for some kind of – you know what? What, is, what would you think would be the game, Philip? I mean, why would they be doing this to us unless it's some kind of like little dirty Illuminati trick and the joke is on us? I personally feel that it's it's psychocognitive warfare, um, that it's used, first off, A, to breed what's known as cognitive dissonance. Um, uh, cognitive dissonance is basically uh, a state of, of, of uh, psychological paralysis when, when people don't know what to do and which way to go. Um, um, it's kind of like if you were to uh, uh, place a dog in a room you know, you get the dog to salivate at the sound of a bell and everything because you keep bringing it food every time you sound the bell. And then uh, you turn off the lights and beat the dog. And so every time you turn off the lights, that acts as the dog's cue to, uh, you know, basically cower in a corner and everything. Then all of a sudden you do both at the same time, you know, ring a bell and turn out the lights. And what the dog does is it freezes up. Likewise, the the, uh, the American public basically was paralyzed because the cognitive dissonance that was bred through the the uh, symbology that was conveyed through through mass media for years and years and years, and they think it had instilled in them, you know, this sense of uncertainty. And so, what happened? And they think, well, the powers that be took it from there. And there was very little in the way of uh, of uh, dissenting voices. I also think that it's it's uh, used to uh, also also basically comfort comfortably acclimate us to the uh, future societal models that they would have us accept. Uh, for instance, uh, and, and me and Michael Corbin discussed this on a closer look, but we were discussing the uh, University of Denver mural. Uh, which was uh, the murals? Yeah, it's it's a mural titled uh, "The Digital Transformation," uh, 
Okay. And basically, this mural shows uh, a DNA double helix issuing forth from a uh, goddess's hands. And uh, as the mural continues to ascend into the stars, it transforms into a series of ones and zeros. Well, what this semiotically gesticulates towards is the hypothetical concept of cyber survival, which is a theory of technological resurrection and immortality. Now, you'll notice how the theory plagiarizes the Judaic, Christian, and Islamic concepts of death and rebirth. But now, however, the context is overtly scientific. So sci-fi predictive programmer uh, Arthur C. Clarke prophesied this uh, digital transformation in the novel uh, The City and the Stars. And in the extremely influential book, which was more recently published, The Age of Spiritual Machines by Ray Kurzweil, that author asserts that this digital transformation could be achieved through uh, magnetic resonance imaging or, or some sort of a uh, uh, technique of uh, reading and simulating the human uh, brain's uh, neural structure within a computer. But thus, man becomes a god, the spirit of which inhabits cyberspace and finds incarnation in a corporeal body that's maintained through nanotechnology and what have you. But Ray Kurzweil is what's not, you know, some sort of a marginalized kooky cult leader. Uh, he's, he's been involved in the founding and development of nine businesses, one of which deals with uh, virtual reality. But you can see where in, in just in that mural, um, um, people are being acclimated to uh, a future societal model that the uh, elite wish to uh, uh, bring about. Do you think that that – and we're talking about the Denver Airport murals. Am I correct? Uh, actually, it's the Denver – this was the University of Denver mural, although the – Okay. Yeah, although the uh, the uh, DIA, the Denver International Airport, also has quite a few interesting uh, – uh, quite a few interesting murals and, and uh, pictures that semiotically also gesticulate towards similar uh, themes. And, and really, um, isn't it interesting that at that airport, and a, again, a friend of mine flies for a, uh, an airline that, that goes into Denver, and I asked him to check that out, and this is a gentleman who wants no part of uh, conspiracies, and he indicated, yep, you know, they're there, and they are a little curious. Yeah. He also saw that the... Uh, the official name of the airport was New World Airport. Yeah. And there is a Masonic capstone. Absolutely. And the one thing he asked me after all this was, you know what I can't understand, and he asked it kind of rhetorically, not that he asked, you know, he needs to talk to me about aviation. But <laughs> he said to me, he goes, you know what I don't understand is that airport is so ill-used. Why are they building so many new air uh, runways? And I said to him, not for what's happening now, for what's yet to come. And I won't lead you down that way, but you can respond to it if you wish, Philip. And, and sure. our take is, you know, Harry and myself on the grassy knoll is that uh, in time to come, Washington will be obliterated and uh, the uh, capital of perhaps the American Union, the 34-nation uh, Western Hemisphere, will be in Denver. Uh, any take on that at all? Uh, well, you know, at this point, uh, you know, my take would probably be speculative as well. Uh, uh, but uh, I also think there's a possibility that DIA could serve as a potential 
and I don't want to sound alarmist, but a potential internment camp facility. <laughs> I mean, that that sounds a bit, you know, that sounds a bit doomsday esque. But not on this, uh, not on this program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, I mean, there's already there there was a book uh, that was recently released. Um, I can't remember the author's name, but basically it was a it was a, a apologetics. Uh, in favor for the internment of Japanese citizens mm-hmm. in uh, Manzanar during uh, World War II, which we know now was an atrocity. But it, yet the uh, author uh, writes this polemic in favor of it, and that you know then there's discussions of uh, uh, of uh, you know possible internment camps for potential uh, terrorists uh, nowadays under a, a you know Ashcroft. So um um yeah I mean I mean that's that's also another you know potential application of the uh mm-hmm. uh the DIA I mean like you said there's a lot of it's 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 really ill used it's, there's there's a lot of uh a lot of facilities and a lot of uh uh, uh stuff there that that you know has yet to even be uh you know really uh employed in any sort mm-hmm. of you know real real uh, function yet you know, it's interesting, too, because one of the things I did was I went back to, I think it was a 1968 issue of, you remember Look Magazine, or do you remember your folks having it on the coffee table? Yeah, it's a, um, um, yeah I, I remember it was, a, it's, it's quite a, it's, it was quite a popular magazine sure. in its time. And I was amazed to find, and of course, I was 17 at the time, and for whatever reason, I wasn't paying attention, but the, uh, I believe it was the managing editor of uh, Look uh, wanted to address this bit of, I guess it was about rumored detention camps. And you have to remember at that time you have um, a very split country about Vietnam. You do have some very uh, hot spots in America with regard to racial problems. And so the idea that they were out there was not necessarily a far fetch. And this gentleman, sure. working for a mainstream publication like Look, said they're out there. Yeah. Well, uh, the Village Voice, uh, uh, not too long ago, uh, released an article over potential uh, prison camps. Um, um, and the Village Voice is by no means, uh, you know, a, a conspiracy, uh, a conspiracy theory journal or some sort. It, it is a bit left-wing, mm-hmm. but but uh, it, nonetheless, they their authors uh, uh, have you know acknowledged that possible, that you know that possibility. And I I, I really. I mean, I used to be kind of skeptical, and and you know, again, you can't believe everybody that throws a set of schematics in front of your face and tells you that that's exactly that's what right. you're looking at is mm-hmm. a concentration camp. But at the same time, I, I I don't see how it could not happen again because, frankly speaking, all the same all the same pre- historical precedents that. Uh, you know, pre- preceded uh, uh, the establishment of the Nazi concentration mm-hmm. camps. Uh, we've seen them mirrored here in, in the events of the uh, post-9-11 world. So, you know, I mean, my my general response to the critic on that is, uh, okay, hey, I hope you're right, but d- tell me, if if it is true, what, 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 what the heck is to stop them? You know, right. what, what the heck is to, to keep it from happening again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even if it's not for um, the tension of uh, what dissidents, whatever that would mean, but also when we're looking at this national vaccination program and those who may choose not to uh, want to be vaccinated, I mean, you've got a number of, of uh, causes um, whose end might be in quarantining people, if that's a better word, for detaining them. Yes. And also, I don't know if you've seen this at all, Philip, but 
I mean, we've come upon on the military's own website a handbook uh, for officers as to how to deal with certain um, grades of prisoners to include civil internees, which basically are American citizens inside the U.S. That's right, and, and many uh, uh, many of the uh, FEMA classes they've already they've already uh, uh, have a um, they already have had a instructors who basically vilify our founding fathers and uh uh then of course uh, uh uh vilify uh you know vilify patriotic americans and it's it's interesting because that word patriotism um um has has been you know also basically semiotically tweaked in the uh post september 11th world mm-hmm. you you know that in the pre september 11th world um the patriotic uh, the patriot the appellation of patriot connotative, connotatively uh was derisive it it meant terrorist it meant uh uh you know well you're just a you're just a bigoted militia uh uh you know militia member and uh na- now with you know in the post september 11th world um thanks to the patriot act that that word has again been semiotically tweaked, but now it's been you know kind of reinducted into the uh, cultural lexicon of uh, of uh, preferential phrases. Now now it takes on a brand it takes on a brand new meaning, uh, and patriotism becomes synonymous with fighting terrorism, and fighting terrorism becomes synonymous with informing on your neighbor, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, submitting to wiretaps, submitting to uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, surveillance Searches. and yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, again, you know, the, the again, the the uh, semiotic seeds were there for for that little you know cultural transformation that that we now see underway. We are with Philip Collins, um, who is the author as well as uh, with his brother on the book, and I'm I'm looking for it now because that is one mouthful. It is. The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an Examination of Epistemic Autocracy from the 19th to the 21st Century. And that's available. It's online. You can order it through www.iuniverse.com slash bookstore. Also, would you please, once again, Philip, for our new listeners in this uh, uh, waning uh, half hour, um, Tell them where they can go to find some of the articles that you and your brother have written. Sure. Uh, you can find uh, uh, all my articles, which lay the groundwork for the uh, book, uh, can be found at uh, www.biped.info, and just click the article uh, link. You can also find some of my articles at the Conspiracy Archive. That's all one word, www.conspiracyarchive.com. Uh, you can also find uh, some of Paul's articles at paranoiamagazine.com. Uh, they have a uh, just click the articles link and you should find it. It's titled the uh, uh, oh I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's uh, uh, the psychology of Abu Ghraib: Elite Thought and Iraqi Prisoner Abuse by Paul David Collins. And uh, you can also find at www.nexusmagazine.com on the articles link. You can also find. Uh, uh, the Hidden Face of Terrorism, which is basically an excerpted article from my uh, brother's first book. 
Okay, and he does have a book out there extant that is titled The Hidden Face of Terrorism. Is that yes. correct? Yeah, the, the whole title is The Hidden Face of Terrorism, The Dark Side of Social Engineering from Antiquity to September 11th. And we, we hope, obviously, to have him join us in this series, in this series that uh, has been titled, uh, that we're going to revisit the Collins Brothers, and that is The Magicians of Mutability. And uh, we're going to go on to uh, some more specific items, but I want to revisit something that you did say, if I could. Sure. And I want to know your opinion about when you see uh, Brzezinski writing the grand chessboard back in, what, 1995, 1996? Yeah, somewhere he, in that. Yeah, right. That and, well, and he talks about, did you pick up on this at all, that the United States um, should be careful not to agitate an axis of Iran, China, and Russia? Yeah. Um, um, it, it's, it, it's interesting because... Uh, uh, the whole time he he kind of dances around you know you know that whole that whole uh, uh, I guess you could call it alliance. Uh, there, they, uh, evidently Brzezinski saw the uh, the ties between those nations uh, basically uh, the ties between those nations tightening, and uh, um, it, it's interesting because it's almost as though he knows that, <laughs> that that's going to become part of the new dialectic. And anything that's going to that's going to be the new dialectic that will comprise a a new Cold War. But you know, now let me ask you this: in the framework of of the article you did on the semiotics of nine eleven, sure, and and with some of this uh, hidden imagery in movies and such in preparation, don't you think? Well, uh, that's that's a loaded question. Let me ask you this: <laughs> Do you think Brzezinski is so very prescient? Or do you believe that he knows what the plan is, given the crowd he hangs with? And again, he's laying this in early um, for a time yet to come. I, I think I think <laughs> I really doubt that Brzezinski is ignorant of you know of of really what 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 he's saying. I I think that he has a good idea. Um, um, really, when I read the Grand Chessboard, what I what I basically what I took from it was. He, he was basically delineating the geo strategy that would ensure the Western elites, the, the the Western elites that are here in the United States, global primacy in whatever uh, in whatever form of of global government that we would uh, see uh, eventually come come to pass and everything. Uh, uh, and and so I, I think that he knows that you know that 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 we run the risk now of you know basically. Uh, Basically, inciting some hostilities between us and the Chinese and the Russians and what have you, because we're we're we've basically uh, we've basically stepped into geo strategically sensitive mm -hmm. uh, sensitive mm -hmm. locations. So, um, <laughs> yeah, it was probably it, it's probably it, he you know he he he's probably well aware of, of of you know what exactly what he's proposing and what's on the horizon. Do you think, in any terms, though, that this is a warning to us subliminally. Yeah, I. I, I know it's a tough one, but sure. just tell me what you think, because I, I find it. I, when I hear, when I read that, I'm saying I'm paying attention to this. If he he stated it more than once, and I'm telling you, if he stated it, you know, it's going to happen. Yeah. But, but tell me how you feel about that. I I, I, th I think I think it's kind of like a heads up to be anticipating to be anticipating eventual conflict. With uh, with with the East, um, um, I I I I think that him being a being you know former national security advisor 
and you know his his basically forte one of his fortes being geo strategy yeah he 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 kind of he kind of knows that 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 is what's on the horizon um um you can uh, you can also probably bet that in the future what you're going to see in terms of films uh uh i wouldn't be surprised if you saw films that now took a more uh uh, a more hostile, uh, a more hostile uh, approach towards uh, the East in general, specifically China and Russia. Again, you're going to see a resurgence of of uh, films that are akin to to you know the old Manchurian Candidate, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Red Dawn, and what have mm-hmm. you, because uh, basically that's that's what we have being promulgated here is a new Cold War. And a a new dialectic, a, a new Hegelian dialectic, the framework of which has has you know been you know laid through through uh, our our imperialistic geo strategy. As you draw up against the hour, and um, what I'll do is, if you don't mind, we'll give each other about a four minute break at the top of the hour. Sure. And then rejoin. But I'm, I want to throw this out to you because in the article that I forwarded to you. Uh, the individual who's dealing with the 9-11 symbology in, um, in films and TV um, also talked about, oh, let me think. Jeez, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. And I know it's got to do with 9-11, and I'm, I'm trying to nail it down. Ah, can't do it. So we'll shift gears. Sure. S- still dwelling around 9-11. Uh, are you aware of the first mention of that date inside the United States by Daddy Bush? No, I sure am not. Well, this is why we're saying, you know, what is going on really? Um, there is a book out there, and I'm, in a previous show I cited it, I had it, I don't have it at my fingertips, and I cannot remember in total recall. But when, when Daddy Bush came over here, he referred to New World Order in a congressional gathering on 9-11, I believe it was 1990 or 1991. Really? Yeah, we're not going to split hairs. Chris Pinto also, in his first uh, installment of the Megiddo series, cited a number of other uh, politicians talking about uh, New World Order on 9-11 and, and years gone by. So again, this is what I'm saying to you. I mean, oh, I know where I was going with this. I got it. I'm back together again. <laughs> this all joins in with what the... Um, the writer had, had used from our radio show with Dr. Rebecca Carley, who had said, and I'm going to you know, just s- summarize this, she said, in their sick Masonic minds, if they tell you they're going to do it to you before they do it, it's okay, like it's honorable to do such. And this is what I want to throw out to you as this, this hour ends. Do you see in your study and your awareness of spirituality and the fact that you understand that there's a satanic takeover coming, do you see where the Illuminati, or whatever you want to call it, is really preoccupied with numerology and yes. loves this sort of thing? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, one only one one need only look at well, look at Washington D.C. You have, you know, yes. I mean, the whole the whole area is replete with 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 symbology with with numerology i mean you have the pentagon it has five sides mm-hmm. five is the number associated with mars the god of war um you have the uh, again the washington monument which which is an obelisk a fertility symbol comes from the story of osiris and isis right. which 
is an allegorical account of Nimrod and Semiramis? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, and uh, I think I think that um, also the reason that the elite that that you know numerology and symbology is so important to them is uh, they they're extremely superstitious bunch of people. And uh, um, they believe that these numbers, that these symbols have occult sim- uh, significance and, uh, and will, you know, imbue them somehow mm-hmm. with power. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's important that they try to, you know, uh, try to draft some of their plans within the framework of these uh, esoteric, uh, these esoteric myths. Well, in the occult, would you not agree that numerology is, is very strong? I mean... Uh, I would say that's one of the reasons, and this is another whole ball of wax about one of the re- you know why some Christian holidays were hijacked and placed very closely to Druidic dates. Absolutely. I mean, they they you know we laugh about Christmas. I'm sorry, you know, Philip. I don't know how you feel about it. Oh no, no, yeah. no. I agree with you entirely yeah. on that. Holy I mean, mackerel. <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it, that's that's a that's a real it's a real hot button. But I mean, mm-hmm. you know, historians have have placed Jesus's. Uh, uh, birth, his incarnation, somewhere within uh, July and August, and I mean, you know, it's just it just seems to be awfully coincidental, you know, that we now celebrate it on a uh, you know December twenty fifth on a date that you know so many other so many other uh, different uh, uh, religious you know religious uh, uh, events converge mm-hmm. at and everything. Same with Easter. I mean, really, that <laughs> word Easter isn't doesn't really have anything to do with right. with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, the, you know, you have the the Easter bunny seems harmless and innocuous enough, but really that's again a fertility symbol. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, we always laughed about all right, tell us what the connection is between rabbits and eggs. <laughs> I, I don't get it. Yeah, me neither. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I, I guess it's, it must be the Cadsbury egg or something. But <laughs> All right. Uh, b- before we go for our uh, much-heralded break, uh, Philip, again, uh, let me ask you this. I mean, with this book, an examination of epistemic autocracy from the 19th to the 21st century, that's the subtitle. The overarching title is The Ascendancy of the Scientific da- Dictatorship, which we'll pick up on in the second hour. Um, can, can anybody read that? I mean, you guys are brilliant. There's no two ways about it, you and your brother. Oh, but, I mean, <laughs> I mean, can people pick this up and say, okay, I identify with this, I understand it? Uh, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I know that the, the, the whole uh, subtitle is, is quite a mouthful. Um, if I could, I'll just I'll clarify that right now. When, sure. when I refer to epistemic autocracy, epistemic uh, uh, relates to epistemology and is derived from the Greek word episteme, which means knowledge. So really, what you have is an autocracy of knowledge, uh, uh, it, it, which also pertains to science. Uh, science is derived from the original root uh, scientia, which means knowledge, and and so we have an autocratic. Uh, 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 an autocratic control of, of science, of knowledge mm-hmm. in society, which is redirected and used as a weapon against the masses. And uh, that's, that's why, uh, you know, Huxley kind of characterizes it as a scientific dictatorship. Yeah, and we're going to get into um, the scientific dictatorship, which just blew my mind when I saw you touch upon it. I was so glad that you guys did. And oh, also, thank you. Well... <laughs> I've been looking at for that for a long time, and I tell you what, I don't, 
get gushing about anybody, and who cares if I gush about anyone? But yeah, sure. <laughs> I have to say that. Well, I tell you what. When I saw this, I said, okay, this hits on everything that Harry and I have been talking about for a number of years, and you guys seem to be able to distill it on and on the same hand, expand it to make it very understanding for people who want to get into this to realize that really there's no such thing as coincidence when it comes to this, especially what happens in, uh, in mass media and how it does manipulate us. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like a uh, you know what 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 my uh, broadcast criticism instructor uh, 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 Elliot Gaines said. And by the way, he's not a conspiracy theorist, and he certainly wouldn't you know agree with me in all my views. In fact, he's more of a of a left winger. Um, but um, he uh, he uh, he basically put it succinctly. He's like, if you see it in a film or on a TV mm-hmm. show, you can bet it mm-hmm. was designed to be there. Right. Uh, there's nothing that a director doesn't place up there on the screen that isn't meant to be there. All right, we're going to come back in the second hour and expand on that as well. Um, also, I'm going to ask you, Philip, the uh, $64,000 question, that is, is there any such thing as science fiction? But we'll do that and, uh, you know, Take your break. Uh, I appreciate you uh, doing Yeoman's Duty and doing two hours with us. Oh, thank you. And we'll do a couple of minutes, and we'll be right back. Folks, uh, those of you who are listening on the stream, stay with us. We're coming right back. This is the Grassy Knoll. We have with us Philip D. Collins, and we'll be back after a couple of minutes. There is no dream 
Yeah, we're back at the grassy knoll, bringing us back in, was the Hermit of Mink Hollow, an area I used to frequent every so often. That would be called Woodstock, New York. With us in, uh, for the first and for the second hour is Philip D. Collins, who's written a number of articles which are just absolutely fascinating. We'll talk more about where you can find them. He's also authored a book with his brother, who will be on the show as well as we try to uh, evolve this whole um, idea into a series, and we're going to do that. And the book is uh, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an Examination of Epistemic Autocracy from the 19th to the 21st Century. You know, when you guys get together, I'm guessing here, Phil, with the family, I wonder what kind of conversation you have around the uh, the dinner table. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. <laughs> I'll tell you that. <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> you guys are but, no fun to play Scrabble with. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the parties really, uh, they, they're, they're not all they're cracked up to be. <laughs> uh, all right, now let's we'll get down to the nitty-gritty. And that is, I pose this question, and I like to uh, open up the second hour, though we are some uh, 13 minutes after that, uh, with the question, which I would ask you to answer, is there any such thing as science fiction? I would have to say that, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I mean, really, uh, really, science fiction, um, really, and, and, and I, I think I pretty much, I, I pretty much encapsulate the way I view it in the, the title of one of my latest arguments, it's it's fiction as a precursor to fact. Um, it's it, it's basically um, a lot of it is allegorized uh, uh, representations, versions of the e elite's uh, religious doctrine of plans that they wish to see tangibly mm -hmm. enacted. Um, um, I mean, there are there are a few crucial exceptions. Um, for instance, uh, John Carpenter, who I think a lot of folks would consider a sci-fi sci uh, director of, of sorts, right. uh, he, in films like uh, They Live, he he's actually done a, a great deal to to you know shed light on the semiotic deceptions of the elite. But for the most part, writers like Aldous Huxley, H.G. Wells, uh, uh, especially Arthur C. Clarke, um, uh, Gene Roddenberry, people like these. Uh, have basically uh, uh, been instrumental in the promulgation of uh, the elite's uh, religious doctrine and also uh, comfort comfortably acclimating the uh, populace to uh, uh, to uh, accept the uh, coming events that the elites have uh, have uh, scheduled for us to experience. So we could assume that some of these writers, to whom we ascribe such imaginative powers, actually were privy probably to what was going on in R&D in a number of areas of uh, experimental testing. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, you take, a, for instance, take H.G. Wells and everything. First, H.G. Uh, Wells has been uh, alleged to have been a Freemason. I believe he was referred to as Brother, uh, Brother Wells in uh, an a American Freemasonic publication, although many Freemasons uh, reject uh, uh, reject that notion that he uh, is a Freemason, whatever the case may be. We do know that he was a Fabian Socialist, that he was mm -hmm. a member of the, uh, the Secretive Coefficients Club, mm -hmm. and what have you. But in uh, his book, uh, The Shape of Things to Come, which not only is science fiction, but is really a, a, a polemic on behalf of, of, of uh, a technocratic world government, it's really in favor of a ruling elite. Uh, Wells places uh, the uh, 
city of uh, London uh, as he basically uh, depicts it as the uh, entity that's responsible for uh, tying together the world uh, economic system. Mm-hmm. And we now know that the city of London is the international center of uh, banking and culture. But bear in mind, this was back in 1933. Uh, Wells also uh, predicted World War II beginning somewhere in 1940. A little bit off the mark, but not not really not right. bad at all. Right. And uh, it takes place in Poland uh, 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 with uh, a, a uh, basically a uh, contrived uh, uh, grievance between right. uh, uh, Polish uh, Jews and uh, and Nazis. Um, he also uh, uh, really accurately depicts World War II as as a uh, as a extremely bloody uh, period and uh, sets the uh, date for ending. Uh, the conflict in uh, 1949. And again, you know, not quite on, but not bad. I mean, that's only, you know, four years difference and everything. So what this suggests to me and should suggest to the astute reader is that Wells was privy to certain information and uh, uh, was probably providing, you know, his his fuzzy uh, and, you know, his fuzzy but, uh, but some... Uh, somewhat uh, best guess at, at what the elite had planned for years to come. Well, he also was um, in a, a group that included Cecil Rhodes. Absolutely. And, you know, his idea and the wills uh, which he had were uh, dedicated to what Milner, Lord Milner, and his kindergarten group uh, enforced, and that is to advance the idea of an Anglo-American ruling class over the world. Absolutely. So when you see Wells carry on like this, I mean, he is definitely an exponent of this idea. Absolutely. And uh, if you want to really see a, a modern incarnation of a Wellsian concept, or, well, maybe not entirely a Wellsian concept, but certainly related to Wells, uh, you, uh, you need only look to the uh, the uh, neoconservatives that are kind of... Uh, in power right now in Washington, um, um, throughout uh, uh, the shape of things to come, Wells constantly refers to uh, technocracy and the technocratic movement. Well, the uh, technocratic movement witnessed a rise during the uh, 30s, and it was thanks in part to the support of the technocratic movement that FDR came to power. And uh, with FDR, you came... It came the uh, uh, just rampant uh, growth of big government, uh, the uh, uh, just prolific compartmentalization and bureaucratization of government, mm-hmm. uh, which which the technocratic movement is, are just avid uh, proponents of. And then, of course, you have under the FDR administration the uh, affixing of the uh, Great Seal to the uh, dollar bill. Mm-hmm. So I mean, basically, you know, basically uh, uh, the whole FDR New Deal uh, uh, period could be considered a, a technocratic episode in, in the history of the United States. It, it probably signaled uh, America's uh, uh, transformation into a functional technocracy. But at any rate, um, if you read a uh, Technocracy and the Politics of Expertise, which is by a, an excellent author named uh, Fisher. In it, he refers to neoconservatism as 
a uh, form of of technocracy, and that that it's it's conservative technocracy, uh, but but technocracy nonetheless. And so that's what we have in power now is is a is a uh, uh, clique of technocrats. Well, what what I look at what's happening now, um, and I would assume that it's meant to be. As you and I understand, sure. I mean, the, the, I don't care who. I, we're not Republican. We're not Democrat. No, we just no. know that whoever's in there has got to do what they have been dispatched to do. Absolutely. Um, what I find interesting is, and I'll throw this out to you, and that is, on one hand, you have the neocons, which remind me of Trotskyite communists. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. And then on the on the other side, you get the Democrats, which are also communists in the same sense, but they yeah. just do things more like gently. <laughs> sure, sure. But well, it's it's interesting that you 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 uh, basically pose the neocons as analogous to Trotskyist uh, uh, Crystal, who's considered mm-hmm. the godfather of of neoconservatism. That, that's it, Daddy Crystal, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> he he basically uh, confessed in his book. Uh, I think it's Neoconservatism: An Autobiography of an idea, or I, I, I might be paraphrasing the title incorrectly, but he basically candidly, openly confessed to being a Trotskyite. And mm-hmm. Of his uh, uh, time with the uh, young Trotskyist, he said he had not one regret and was just unrepentant. So, I mean, Trotskyist uh, thinking is very much uh, replete throughout uh, neocon uh, doctrine also, because you have the uh, Trotskyist uh, uh, quasi-imperialist doctrine of, of spreading abroad and and you know moving uh, 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 expanding uh, the borders of, of of Marxism, you know to to the other nations. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, I think it's it's important that people catch on to that because so far uh, uh, the the left wing, while the left wing has done some pretty good jobs in exposing the. Uh, uh, neoconservatives, they they have uh, they have kind of hastily dubbed them anti-communist, pro-American uh, elements, and that's mm-hmm. that's completely and totally disproportionate mm-hmm. with reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, it doesn't take a <laughs> doesn't take a uh, genius to tell you that a lot of what they uh, uh, a lot of what they endorse is statism, which again, mm-hmm. uh, statism and some variant of Marxism. Right. And everything. So, you know, I, I mean, again, the, there's nothing there's nothing pro-American, nothing anti-communist about them. Well, one of the things on the website I did, I do this thing called book retorts. I'm I'm playing around with the word book reports. And, um, you know, I, I'm not trying to tell people what they should think. I'm just saying, go check this out and, and here's some tidbits. Sure. But one of the uh, books that are up there is um, William Z. Foster's Toward Soviet America. Uh-huh. Written in 1932. That's a great date to remember because in it he talks about this is what's going to happen to the United States, and guess what? Through Frankie's reign, it happened. Yeah. You know, even the latest. I think I guess the last element that finally came to fruition was the creation in the late 70s of the United States Department of Education. That's right. But the thing is, when you read somebody who's writing this in in 32. Just before this all was to take place, you have to say to yourself, "Come on now, listen. There are conspiracies. Don't you know? Give me a break." Yeah. And this is where you see them. And what what I have to laugh at is when I talk to people and we have discussions. I'm saying, "Okay, so you think we're free because every one of our agencies is entitled federal?" 
Yeah. But when you look at Russia, you look at Soviet this and Soviet that or whatever it should be, and you're saying, oh, those poor people are in servitude. Hello? The thing is, federal and Soviet, it's all the same deal. Yeah, it's the same, it, it, you know, different different uh, operating jargon for the same for the same thing. Right. And uh, uh, it's interesting that you... You know, you you you, uh, you brought up uh, science fiction earlier, and and we're talking about FDR and how FDR's New Deal really facilitated America's metamorphosis into a functional technocracy. Um, um, it's interesting because FDR uh, loved the literature of uh, Edward Bellamy, who was a, me- yeah. a, a member of the uh, Progressive Movement. <laughs> yeah. And they were kind of, uh, I guess you could call them uh, precursors to the technocratic movement. Okay. But uh, he loved, in particular, a book entitled "Looking Backward," right. which was science fiction, um, or you know, science fiction in quotes. Yep. And in uh, uh, in "Looking Backward," Edward Bellamy presents a a uh, a future society where. Uh, you know, you have uh, basically a, a, a monolithic uh, governmental uh, machination that that basically uh, coordinates and, and directs society and, and a rule by uh, uh, experts and uh, um, all 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 uh, nation states have uh, been amalgamated into a uh, into a global super state, mm-hmm. and so then. When he was delineating his plan for economic recovery, uh, nodding to Bellamy, FDR wrote "Looking Forward." So you see, you have mm-hmm. you have Bellamy who writes "Looking Backwards" and everything, and 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 uh, "Looking Forward" was was you know the best way that 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 he could uh, give his uh, literary nod to uh, uh, somebody who would would you know basically inspire him. And uh, inspire some of the uh, policies of the uh, New Deal. Yeah, and not to uh, cast aspersions against the Bellamy brothers, who are a Florida rock and roll group, <laughs> who had a couple of hits. Uh, and and these the, the Bellamy's I'm thinking about with Francis and Edward, they were not brothers. They, were they? Was it a cousin situation? Uh, you know, don't, I don't. I, I'm not quite sure. But I mean, the whole Pledge of Allegiance was created by one of the Bellamy's. Yeah. And it's all about, yeah, pledge your butt to the state. It's yeah. like, no, that is not what the Constitutional Republic of the United States was about. No. Well, in, in the original, uh, uh, the original, uh, I guess, uh, saluting posture that the uh, uh, person who recites the uh, Pledge of Allegiance was supposed to assume was instead of right hand over heart, mm-hmm. right hand extended. In, in much in the same fashion that the uh, uh, Nazis extended mm-hmm. their hand in the proverbial Sieg Heil uh, salute. Right, which was absolutely disappeared after World War II. Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this gentleman, but he's been on the show. He's done a great work, Rex Curry. No, I sure am not. Well, I'll send you that email because he is chronicled through many, many um, letters and documents and photos how this whole pledge was basically Romanist in its origins with the hand extended and, uh, and, and continued on. And so, um, yeah, you're, and I mean, you know, I, I want to believe that the Pledge of Allegiance is patriotic, but really the guy who wrote it did not have in mind individual freedom, but, you know, um, sacrifice to the state. Absolutely. Well, you know, and again, it's the question of, of connotative meaning versus denotative meaning. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, uh, uh, you look at, at the wording, and it seems, you know, innocuous enough and everything. Because, of course, I, I, I would more than, than pledge my support to a constitutional republic and everything, but I'm not about to, to pledge myself to, to any state, uh, pledge myself mind, body, and soul to mm-hmm. it. And I think, which I mean, I mean, if you look at the progressive movement uh, of Edward Bellamy, and I think, which again was a precursor to the technocratic movement, the idea is always inherently collectivist: the subordination of the individual mm-hmm. to the collective, and uh, the uh, the uh, uh, many always out. Uh, the, you know, it, to, to I guess quote you know uh, Roddenberry: the needs of the many always. Out, outweighed the needs of the few, few right. and everything. So, I mean, that's the underlying uh, rationale and the underlying paradigm that that seems to underpin uh, uh, some of the elements of the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. We were with uh, Philip Collins, who's the author of a book with a really long title. <laughs> I'm not, not going to go into this, but I tell you what, we have two of his articles up on Visigoth.com, uh, one of which was co-authored with his brother uh, Paul who has, uh, also has done an, an amazing work and will be with us, we really hope, uh, for an installment of the series, which would be entitled The Magicians of Mutability. Um, but I've got to tell you, one of the shows we did a, a while back, Philip, was called American Union 2005, mm-hmm. and it was based on the good work that Galen Ross had done. Are you familiar with Galen at all? Uh, uh Vaguely, he wrote okay. a. Then he wrote a write a elite bloodlines or rumors. Yes, you got it right. Yeah, right. And his website. That's uh, phone's not for me. Just ignore it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, his website is I believe uh, four, the numeral four r i e dot com. Go check that out. But anyway, he was good enough. Anyway, we got a um, a video from uh, him about uh, American Union two thousand five and how all the powers that be in the United States, to include Madeleine Albright and uh, Rockefeller, of course, wanted to see an, an, um, you know, an integration economically of all 34 nations in the Western Hemisphere, okay? Certainly. So what happened was, in one of these um, clips from C-SPAN, and that's where I believe Galen got that from, um, they're doing this lovey-lovey piece on the U.N. And i got to tell you, with Roddenberry in mind, uh, we, I taped this, I ripped the audio, and we did it in the show, and we played it two or three times back, and I'm saying, holy mackerel, if you can envision, Philip, the um, the original Star Trek soundtrack, I mean, the music with the horns and stuff, uh-huh. it, is, it is in that film clip from 1949. That's amazing. And, I mean, I, don't, I challenge anybody to go look at that show, uh, you know, uh, American Union 2005, and listen to that six-minute beauty piece that they showed on the UN. And I mean, I looked at Harry and Harry, you know, is always willing to hit me over the head and saying, you're crazy. It's coincidence. And he looked at me and he went, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but, but uh, here again, you talk about semiotics. Roddenberry yeah. was a one world dude. Yeah. The Federation. Well, absolutely. And, and, and uh, also to, to reiterate on the semiotic angle. Okay. In semiotics, uh, uh, there's, there's, there's three kinds of signs, one of which be, being icons. Icons are basically signs that resemble something else. Okay. Give us or, an example, please. I'm sorry? 
Can you give us an example? Sure, sure. A hardcore? Uh, uh, okay, an icon, is a good example of an icon is a statue. It resembles something that, that the statue was sculptured after, or a portrait. A portrait, say, mm-hmm. a, a portrait of George Washington is the painter's, uh, you know, approximation of George Washington's uh, features. It may, it may be very, very much, you know, look very, very much like George Washington, but we know it isn't George Washington. It's an approximation, mm-hmm. and it, so it's, it's, it, it has iconic value. Uh, it, it, but at any rate, uh, it, to give even a better example, uh, uh, the uh, the hand gesture that a lot of uh, uh, sex, drug, rock and roll musicians use, the horns? Uh, where they 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 hold the two uh, they hold the two horns aloft. Uh, right. uh, has iconic similarity to the goat of Mendes. Right. Um, likewise, if you look at the symbol for the Federation, iconically, it is very, very symbol, uh, uh, similar to the uh, symbol for the uh, uh, United Nations. And uh, uh, most of uh, Gene Roddenberry's ideas, he, he even Said, you know, says that he got a, mo- a great deal of them from elitist think tanks like the uh, Rand Corporation. But uh, one of the most, uh, uh, you know, one of the most uh, damning bits of uh, evidence that Gene Roddenberry, you know, has been responsible in promulgating elite thought was what he said in uh, uh, a book. I think it was called Star Trek Creator or something. It was written by a humanist uh, by the name of Alexander. But uh, in it, and I'll quote him now, he said the following, As nearly as I can concentrate on the question today, I believe I am God. Certainly you are. I think we intelligent beings on this planet are all a piece of God, are becoming God, unquote. And that, that is the core, the core of uh, the elite's Luciferian religion, the core uh, of uh, the elite's uh, Luciferian doctrine. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it's 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 just, again, it's just pervasive throughout science fiction literature. It's sure. pervasive throughout uh, Star Trek. Pervasive throughout uh, Star Wars. In Star Wars, you you, uh, uh, you have, uh, for instance, in in uh, the Phantom Menace, they, the the uh, character, uh, uh, the central character, Anakin Skywalker, is uh, birthed via a uh, virgin birth. Um, and and mm. um, um, in it, they they talk about this uh, element called the metachlorines, which uh, bind all life together. And they say that in his in the instance of of Anakin, the metachlorines birth themselves. Well, that's that's kind of like that's that's very Darwinian because that's abiotic gener- uh, uh, or abiogenesis mm-hmm. and everything. And that that again uh, uh, returns to an older uh, occult concept. Uh, which was uh, uh, central to the uh, cabal, uh, to uh, cabalism, and that occult mm-hmm. concept is that of the uh, golem. Uh, the golem being a, a, an uh, artificial man, a living being spawned from non-living material. Right. And uh, 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 the idea is that there is no separation between uh, the living and the dead. There is no separation between non-living matter and living matter. And and uh, uh, you you see this you see this uh, type of thinking uh, uh, also uh, evident in uh, the uh, P 
Gaia hypothesis, right. which was presented by Lovelock. Essentially, Gaia, the, the Earth goddess worshipped by a great many of the uh, radical environmentalists, is, mm-hmm. a, is a, a Kabbalistic golem and everything. But uh, 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 um, it's also evident in, again, the sci-fi themes of, uh, of uh, virtual reality, cyber survival. It's evident in those uh, where you have, uh, uh, for instance, Terminator or Terminator 2, uh, the, the machine develops sentience. All of a sudden, this non-living, uh, this non-living uh, uh, being, because it's a machine, uh, develops sentience to become self-aware, self-conscious. It, it, it's basically a golem, and I, I, I believe uh, even an old uh, a, a cabalistic, uh, a cabalistic priest of some sort. I'm trying to remember his name, uh, but I can't remember his name. But uh, he referred to computers as uh, the modern-day golems mm-hmm. and everything. And this, this, this sort of thinking is just pervasive throughout uh, science fiction literature and is the thought that we're being inculcated into to accept. All right, now let us get into uh, about the scientific dictatorship. Sure. And I I think it's so key, and this is the one thing that when I saw it, I, I just like absolutely scrapped around the Internet to try to find where I could get in touch with you. Because Harry and I, with this show, and, you know, what we're doing is not – you know, innovative. I mean, we, we just see what we see as well when we resonate it. But I mean, we, we're saying to people, hello, folks, guess what? Aldous Huxley was not kidding around when he wrote Brave New World or Brave New World Revisited. Yeah, and people should all. read those two books along with Orwell's, I, I think, Orwell's 1984 to find out exactly where we're going. And the scientific dictatorship was a term that he did use, I believe, in Brave New World Revisited. Yes, and correct. And I heard it also on that speech he gave at Berkeley, which is up on the net and for people to hear, called The Ultimate Revolution. Did you listen to that at yes, all? Yes, I sure did. Yeah, he referred, he referred to uh, – uh, I believe he referred to Nazi Germany and uh, co- uh, communist Russia as uh, scientific dictatorships during the course of that lecture. Yeah, soon to come to a neighborhood near you. <laughs> and, I mean, are we not seeing this? I mean, now, give me your take on Brave New World, and well, we'll, we'll take it from there. Go ahead. Sure, sure. Brave New World is basically a, a, a thinly veiled Roman on Clef. Uh, Roman on Clef is, is basically a, a literary genre that uh, – a literary genre that, that you know, has uh, veiled truth to it and everything – but it would appear that 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 the idea of a scientific dictatorship uh, certainly didn't originate with Huxley. Uh, Aldous Huxley is yet another person who has been alleged to have been a Freemason. Um, um, he's also uh, uh, was a member of a of a uh, secret society known as the uh, Children of the Sun, which was occupied by the uh, Children of of Round Table uh, members mm-hmm. and everything. But um, and he was also uh, uh, mentored by H.G. Uh, Wells, and H.G. Uh, uh, Wells's concepts of a technocracy, uh, uh, no doubt, probably rubbed off on Huxley and everything. But uh, um, um, basically, the concept it, it, the concept is is that that science is science is used as an instrument 
for the sculpting of of, of human uh, civilization. Right. And uh, again, returning to the original root of scientia mm -hmm. uh, uh, for science, meaning knowledge, you could you could pretty much characterize this uh, this uh, uh, this elite as as an epistemological cartel and everything, being that they've cartelized knowledge and everything. And of, and of course, uh, 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 President Eisenhower in his very, very famous uh, farewell address, uh, uh, right. everybody, everybody always listens to uh, the segment of that where he refers to the, in, uh, the military-industrial complex. But the one quote that they miss out on is where uh, Eisenhower uh, says the following. He says, quote, Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger mm -hmm. that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite, unquote. And so the idea mm -hmm. is, is a society managed by uh, a technological scientific elite and also wielding science as the proverbial magic wand mm -hmm. uh, uh, over mankind. I mean, again, you know, we normally take what scientists tell us as, as you know, gospel, and uh, uh, like the shaman of a tribe, the shaman, you know, tell the tribe, well, you know, the gods did this, the gods do that, and the gods tell you to, you know, pay homage <laughs> to me, this, that. Who knows why I do, because I'm the shaman. And it, it's interesting because in an, in an issue of... Uh, Scientific America, Michael Shermer wrote an article titled The Shamans of Scientism, or the, 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 the Shaman of Scientism and everything. And uh, in it, he basically said that the scientists were to act as the new myth makers for mm -hmm. a brand new age. I don't know who I sent this to, and as I talk this out, perhaps I'll remember. It was a female. And I was saying about Huxley wasn't kidding, and that what we see now with genetic you know, modification and in vitro creation of life, that really what they can do is create a grunt population, if you will, yeah, to commit, you know, or execute all the laborious functions they wish, while they themselves can ensure genetic purity. That's right. Uh, uh, is that what you're seeing also? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean that's especially evident um, um, in the uh, eugenics movement. The uh, eugenics movement, mm -hmm. uh, basically, eugenics is derived from the uh, Greek word for well-born. But it was it was a term coined by Sir Francis Galton, who surprise surprise mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. Charles Darwin's cousin, mm -hmm. and also received the the official sanction of Charles Darwin. Before uh, a lot of a lot of evolutionists like to play off eugenics as this ugly little uh, aberration that attached itself to uh, evolutionary theory, but that's not so. Um, um, at any rate, uh, 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 the uh, eugenics movement uh, 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 was was largely uh, responsible for uh, the emergence of, of the organization that we now call uh, Planned Parenthood. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, now today, you know, we of course, how many babies have been aborted and everything, but not many people are aware of the fact that uh, Margaret Singer was a uh, was a proponent of uh, mm -hmm. eugenics, proponent of the Nazi eugenics uh, projects. Uh, uh, one of the people who wrote for her uh, uh, 
uh, her publication, the uh, uh, what was it called, the uh, Birth Control Review, was none other than Ernest Rudin, who was instrumental in the uh, uh, assembly of uh, uh, Adolf Hitler's uh, 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 Adolf mm-hmm. Hitler's uh, racial hygiene programs. And uh, uh, when when Aldous Huxley presents this this breed of of you know genetically uh, you know the generic the uh, genetic overclass. He's not. He's not. This isn't by any means a fictional a fictional concept, and it, he isn't by any means innovating. This isn't a concept that originated with him. He was in uh, uh, and amongst people elitist with elitist thought who believed mm-hmm. in this in in the existence of a superior stock. Uh, his own brother Julian Huxley mm-hmm. also was, uh, you know, who was uh, uh, pretty much the mastermind uh, behind UNESCO. That's right. Uh, uh, endorsed the use of eugenics and and basically said, well, hopefully in the future. Now I, I'm paraphrasing him use uh, loosely, but in the future, hopefully that which uh, man considered unthinkable will at least become thinkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, what we've lost sight of, obviously, because our generation, um, born post-World War II, for the most part, uh, had no relationship to as far as being alive and remembering these things. And, of course, it's been sanitized from our history books and, and, and otherwise. Um, there was a mounting desire to um, for eugenics and euthanasia prior to World War II, where they would take a look and say, well, look, your, your family are just hereditary uh, 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 you know, criminals, so we're going we're gonna to make sure that you don't have any seed, so they yeah. will sterilize you. Yeah. And well, then, Mark, you know, oh, I'm sorry. No, no. I mean, are you on, you're on board with that, right? I, 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 absolutely. I mean, you look at all the, the, the segments of the population that Margaret Singer, you know, termed morons, uh, genetically uh, inferior. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, good grief! It was like it, it, it was the African Americans. It was uh, the uh, it was the uh, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. It was the Jews. It, you know, uh, 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 Sir Francis Galton himself, who who basically you know developed eugenics. Uh, he 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 said that the Jews were a major problem that had to be you know basically Jeez. wiped out. And anything, and only through selective breeding, and you know the uh, the banning of procreation within certain you know segments of the population, mm-hmm. we we were going to be able to overcome this genetic threat that 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 they that they feared. But but um, that's that's basically the preoccupation, one of the major preoccupations within the within the elite is a preoccupation with a su- superior stock of man and a superior stock of blood. For our listeners and for my own edification, I will admit, the way I figure it and tell me, you know, what you think, I've traced through a number of books that it seems that, you know, I don't know. I mean, Galton was related to Darwin, was he not? Uh, who? They were Galton and, and Darwin were oh, what? Absolutely, yeah. They were cousins. All right. Darwin preceded Galton. Is that true? Uh, yes, yes. All right. So Galton comes up with this, but actually... That what Galton forwarded was actually from Darwin's grandfather, wasn't it, Erasmus? Yes, yes, uh, uh, and uh, Erasmus Darwin um, was in fact a uh, Freemason, and I mean, there's a great deal to suggest 
um, that that the uh, that evolutionary theory itself and everything is really just derivative of the old uh, doctrine of transformism that originated six thousand years ago mm-hmm. with, in Mesopotamia in Babylon in, in Egypt and uh, 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 really what these men were doing were acting as transmission belts for the older mm-hmm. ideas of antiquity right. and and uh, basically placing them you know placing them in a contemporary context in a in a more scientific context i mean the 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 ideas they're not they're not they're no longer overtly mystical they are mystical in character but they're mm-hmm. no longer overtly uh, mystical they are instead uh uh sort of materialistic um um but nonetheless occult and uh they acted as uh as basically the the uh, conduits for that uh, strain of thought mm-hmm. uh, into the 20th century. And uh, as we're entering the 21st century, we see that that ideational continuum, that continuity of thought, right. is a, uh, again uh, uh, undergoing a change with, uh, with uh, transhumanism, the idea in this post-human uh, 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 condition that man will become machine and everything, <laughs> and again, which was semiotically gesticulated towards by several works of uh, science fiction. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I can't remember who the sister was that said, listen, um, they're serious, and they're going to breed a type of worker who doesn't eat a lot of food and such. You know, and, and I was like, oh, I never thought of that. You know, I mean, that, that they could really bring it down so explicitly to what Huxley had envisioned. But um, let me run through this real quickly because it leads to another thing that's happening today with this depopulation effort. So we, we have Erasmus, who comes up with these ideas. Francis Galton kind of runs with him. Charles Darwin picks him up. And then it goes to T.H. Huxley. Is that correct? Uh, kind of, kind of, sort of. T.H. Huxley, T.H. Huxley acted as Darwin's uh, bulldog. We kind of, I kind of get the idea, though, that, that you know, some, some form of transformist uh, doctrine was already circulating sure. within... Uh, Huxley's crowd, you know, prior to to uh, his, uh, you know, picking up the torch for Darwin and anything. But he certainly did run with the torch after, you know, after Darwin, you know, presented Origin on the Species. Well, what's missing in this continuum is the father of uh, Aldous and, and Julian, but it seems that the breach was uh, filled by H.D. Wells. Absolutely. Right. And then the Huxley's continue it, and here we are today, right? That's right, absolutely. In fact, you mapped it out very, very beautifully. And if I also may point out, T.H. Huxley was also a Freemason, and uh, uh, <laughs> for no real good reason, he was made a uh, fellow of the uh, British Royal Society. <laughs> That's so which, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, uh, abs- you know, the British Royal Society kind of acted like as the the headquarters for uh, uh, for quite some time of the uh, scientific technological elite, it was they acted as the uh, as basically I guess you could you could you know, consider them something of the the antenna for the transmission of of elite thought under the uh, guise of science. You know, when I try to tell people, uh, and now I'm going to bring it to the present day, and that is, and we've talked about this, and you need not commit yourself to what I'm going to say, but we did discuss. Sure. The fact that, you know, peak oil, I wouldn't have a problem with 
if it wasn't so inextricably connected to depopulation. It's like, okay, the deal's done. Forget about it. You know, this is the way it's got to be. And I don't believe, you know, Yahweh would have put us on this planet to all of a sudden turn around and say, okay, I'm pulling the blanket out from under you. And it's not necessarily the Lord that, that's doing this, but, it's, but obviously, you know, technocrats. Yeah. But, it, it, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, no, ahead. no. So all, all I mean is, is that when I hear peak oil, which I don't really believe to be gospel, excuse mm-hmm. me, sure. tied into population reduction, and this goes into the second paper that we have up on our site, it's like, oh, come on, folks. I mean, there, there's something beneath all this, and this is just not, you know, this this is banging a little bit weird on my ears. Yeah, and 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 uh, a good, I mean, I mean, first off, it, it it proves to be just a little bit too convenient for the population control crowd. Boy, and, and secondly, um, um, I, I, much of the of the uh, peak oil crowd continues to parrot the same. Uh, the same eugenics crowd. They they've mm-hmm. quote they quote uh, Darwin's uh, the Darwin's extensively, and the 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 rationale that seems to be underpinning uh, their their beliefs is that uh, the Creator that 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 Jehovah is looking down upon us and now demanding that we evolve or die, and mm-hmm. uh, um, basically that that. That that's that was also the paradigm, the basic paradigm, the basic uh, way of thinking of uh, of uh, one of the uh, spiritual gurus of of Cecil Rose, uh, Rhodes, a guy by the name of uh, Winwood Reed. He was a hmm. theistic evolutionist. He believed in God, although he certainly didn't believe in an anthropomorphic God and everything that uh, a God that that you know, took part in the affairs of man, who uh, was refining man through through uh, evolution and through uh, the uh, processes of nature. And uh, he himself said, and this was his own mantra, his own little dictum, he said, the law of nature is the law of death. And, I mean, that, that, mm-hmm. that preoccupation with death mm-hmm. seems to be amongst many of these people mm-hmm. that... They 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 want to discuss you know reduction of of the the uh, reduction of the population carrying capacity and then invariably we get to topics such as euthanasia mm-hmm. abortion and everything again it seems to it seems to to be a, a preoccupation with death and uh, which you know yes. is just absolutely morbid sickening and and from my own personal standpoint is is overtly satanic well being human being and realize that they're drawing down on humans yeah that might strike you that way yeah and i agree i mean and i see peter singer now with all the books that are out there now about bioethics yeah are are carrying that strain from sanger that man yeah and i mean he's he uh, you want to talk about a worm you know he refers to (laughs) to, uh, yeah he refers to uh babies as neonates uh uh that that they're they're nothing but you know they're nothing but mackerels, and that that now, of course, now that they're outside of the womb, now we shouldn't find any problem with terminating their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, before a specific age, we and again this this goes right back to the the theme uh, uh, of of man becoming God, man in his uh, ascent to apotheosis uh, uh, at the pinnacle of deification. 
will no longer be man. He will no longer be human. And thus, to dehumanize certain segments of the population in in the pursuit of this ultimate right. goal is 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 not unthinkable to to them. It it's it is in fact just a given. It is in fact just one more uh uh you know one more necessary uh uh you know necessary evil in our evolutionary ascent and uh once we enter this post human you know era once we you know are no cease to be humanity altogether uh in the words of nietzsche once we overcome our humanity and everything it will have no longer mattered yeah. it w- the, the 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 segments of the population that we've exterminated that we've you know, sterilized that we have basically worked uh, into their graves uh, will have been spit in the bucket. We are with Philip Collins, who, along with his brother Paul, have written a number of books and articles about the scientific dictatorship and what we're facing. Um, and really, uh, we would like you to go to, if you can, uh, for instance, the uh, website biped.info. Uh, conspiracy archive is that right yeah conspiracyarchive.com we have two up on visigoth.com and the book they've written the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship an examination of epistem- uh, epistemic autocracy from the 19th to the 21st century uh sounds con- sounds confusing sounds convoluted sounds high blown but i tell you what it it really does relate to every single one of us and it does it, it's, it's extremely germane to the shows that, that Harry and I have done, warning people that we have a class of people out there who have no compunction whatsoever about eliminating the useless feeders. Am I right on that or what, Phil? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, basically, if, if, if you really want to you know, get to the, the, the core of it and everything, it, it's basically, uh, and this, this shouldn't come as a surprise with, again, with the, with the uh, popularization of films such as The Matrix mm-hmm. and oh, other yeah. sci- science fiction mm-hmm. films like that, this is this is like the new the new Gnostic era, because the idea is that uh, uh, man is basically man is basically a creature that's fettered by the demonic agents of time and space, and the only way to overcome these demonic agents is to overcome his own humanity alter humanity's sensate theme through uh now today through techno uh technology through science and everything and mm-hmm. eventually you know become become that which he uh uh was not to begin with and that was god and you know we've seen this laid in literature for a century absolutely we've we've pointed out um, you know, quite often to the Wells books and such. and um, But it's here today, and it's with us right now. Absolutely. And, I mean, as much as we all love environmentalism, we don't want to pollute stuff, we have to watch out, as, as John Coleman warned, and as you wrote to me very astutely that, you know, you know John had his niche out there, and he was sure. correct. And in this case, I believe he's right, and that is watch out, because radical environmentalism wants to make sure you're not sustainable, so you can be basically returned to a certain kind of new feudalism. Absolutely. Well, if you look at one of the terms that I've heard circulated amongst uh, radical environmentalists, really has very little to do with the uh, 
you know, maintenance of the environment right. and everything. And that is the word uh, reprimatization. Mm-hmm. We have to reprimatize uh, uh, mm-hmm. the land. Well, I, I, I mean, now, of course, this is me drawing from my own, you know, scriptural background as a Christian. But, but, but one of the mandates uh, uh, that the Lord set down for uh, mankind was not was to take that which was primitive and and you know take take that which is 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 uh, barren and uh you know build upon it and and right. expand on it now i'm not talking urban sprawl i'm not talking right. you know out of control techno industry and anything but i am talking about uh 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 i am talking about uh uh shaping out of out of you know the wild some uh, uh you know civilization and uh, that that seems to be ultimately what they oppose is civilization itself. Um, and everything. I believe that one of the bumper stickers that they sport is uh, uh, it goes something like "Do the Earth a favor or save Earth, kill yourself." I know. <laughs> well, that's beautiful. <laughs> you know? so, I mean, this is this is just irrationality to the you know the tenth power. That's right, cute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Philip D. Collins has been with us. Please visit my website. Also, we've we've mentioned a number of times where you can read his articles. Philip, are you still on board with doing a series with us? I sure am. Absolutely. You, ha- uh, you have to because I'll get mad otherwise, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And uh, and Paul will join us also. Um, this is absolutely seminal. Thank you for doing thank your you. hour and even more. Oh, thank you so much. It's been an honor. All right, and we'll do this again. And thank you for visiting the Grassy Knoll, and we'll be in touch. Okie doke. Good night. Listening to the Grassy Knoll two hour segment with Phil Collins. Please check out his work. And right now we're going to uh, bring you back to your regular, regular, regular schedule programming on Harry's Live 365 station. PascoRadio.org, Dade City, Micro Radio tonight.